into Parshish Korach and its Haftorah. The reason I'm dealing with the Haftorah as well, there's a very interesting link that I think you're going to find very fascinating between the two. Uh, we're going to say in the beginning just the, the, the obvious links, but there's deeper links that we're going to get to by the end of this year today. And also, um, I know the women I'm speaking to have nothing to do with my focus. So I didn't want to harp, you know, get on that too long because, which is everyone knows, Korach is machlokas. I didn't want to deal with that in great detail because I don't think that that's so relevant. Whereas there's other things that are much more relevant from this week's harsh. Okay, so first of all, the. All right, let's talk a little bit about the Torah first, and we'll get back to the parsha and you know, and tie them together beautifully. Hopefully, the Torah this week is very interesting. It talks about how Shmuel decides to renew King Shaul's kingdom. You know, King Shaul was very humble. David Melech called him Mashiach Hashem, even though he had like either some people say crazy moments that he thought David was after him, or that in any case he thought he had the right that it was he was rebelling against the kingdom. In any case, King Shaul was a very holy man, and David, as I said, called him Mashiach Hashem. After all, he was meant to be the one to wipe out a Malik. But when he was coronated by Shmuel to be the next Jewish king, he was awkward about the whole thing. He was resident. He didn't want to accept that uh, position upon himself. So what he did was he, he kind of like stood back, didn't kind of make a big deal about it. And then there was opposition as well, as always. The, they, the, the king of Ammon was, uh, they had to make some kind of peace treaty with them. They refused. I'm just really making this in short. And it starts this week's Parsha that he had won over um, the Melech of Ammon. And after he won that battle, King Shaul brought him to Gilgal, which is where the, uh, so to speak, Mishkan was at that time. Not so to speak, it was a Mishkan, but it wasn't the real Mishkan until David Melech. And they, they had a whole public gathering for King Shaul, and they made sacrifices. They were all united. And right then and there, Shmuel Hanavi gives a speech. He says, this is, by the way, in Shafer Shmuel, Yud Beis, but the Gimel, that's for you, Bina. It says, as sure Mila Kachti, whose ox did I take? The Chamor Mila Kachti, whose donkey has I, have I ever taken? Vesma Ashakti, Vesmira Tosti. And who did I steal from? And who did I, you know, push into coerce, into buying from me? Umiyad Mila. And from who to take, like, you know, extra money when I didn't, when it wasn't legitimate. And everyone got up and they said, their witness that you have, Shmuel Hanavi, have never taken anything from anyone. And everyone was all united and they brought back a connection with this. And Parshas Karach, we are told that. You must know this, of course, that Shmuel Hanavi was a descendant of Korach. He was one of Korach's descendants. And Moshe Rabbeinu says a similar speech. I did not write it down, but it's in Tezvav, if you want me to read it to you. Um, we're told, Moshe Rabbeinu says, in speech Parsha, after the whole rebellion of Korach, he says, I never took anybody's donkey. And I never harmed another Jew. Both of them said that. By the way, contrary to what people think about being a great Jew, you know, people think, who are the tzaddikim, the people that are most machmer, the people that are most strict about things. Uh, Rav Moshe Feinstein, Sechran Lebracha, said he never in his life felt that he ever on purpose harmed another Jew, ever. To his mind, since he was of age, he never harmed another Jew. So that's what he felt was what brought him to what he was. Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, by the way, said what he felt the reason he lived a long life was because he never told a lie. 
So we find that with all this, behind everything are good mitos, good character traits. That's the, the, the main element of a Jew, and that's what we have to focus on. Now, so the, uh, the reason why people were begging for a king during the time of Shmuel, Shmuel's sons, they thought that Shmuel's sons, they didn't like them or something, they didn't want them to be serving after Shmuel passed away. And they were hoping for a king. Shmuel's trying to dissuade them from being a king, from, you know, from, um, from taking upon themselves a king. He said, Hashem hu malkachem. God is your king. You don't need another king. That was his speech. Uh, interestingly enough, that echoes Parsha's Korach, where Moshe, Rabbe, uh, Korach comes to Moshe and says, Lama tisnasu alam Hashem. Why are you raising yourself above the Jewish people? Why do they need a leader? Interesting echo between the two of them, and we're going to go into what that is here. Now, in both cases, Baha'i Torah and the Parsha, what they have in common is the leader stressed that he have no personal gain, no personal gain from being a Jewish leader. Contrary to our world leaders today, where it's all about personal gain, a Jewish king, we've stressed this many times before, they live for others. We are, there was a term once, but a long time ago in, in English called being a public servant. And um, we're supposed to personify it in the Jewish world. A Jewish servant, a Jewish king doesn't live for himself. He lives for Kalal Yisrael. Now, in both cases, both leaders were rejected. Shmuel Hanavi's children were rejected. And uh, the, the leader that Shmuel, you know, he rejected really any king altogether, but they wanted it. And both of the, the two leaders, Moshe Rabbeinu and Shmuel, to show them that the people were wrong in what they were doing. In the case of Moshe, the Korach shouldn't lead. Moshe made a miracle. They took a staff, of uh, all these staffs together, and the staff of Aaron sprouted um, almonds, you know, and, and flowers. And it was like a cut-off dead branch, whereas all the others did not produce anything. The, the staff belonged to Aaron and Cohen. Also, Moshe Rabbeinu did the nothing with the frying pans. They all took 250 members of Korach's rebellion, took frying pans, and they were, um, they died. You know, they did, they, they, they were trying to do the Kataras, and it didn't work for them. In the time of Shmuel and Navi, in Israel, in the summer, it never rains. Unbelievable, never rains. But Shmuel and Navi promised them they would have pouring rain on the day after they accept Saul as king, and they, they all are witness the fact that he didn't take anything. Because of David Feinstein, they should be Gesundheit Stark, David Ben Simon, he's Rafu Shalema. He says that all the people were united behind both Shaul and by Moshe Rabbeinu by the end of the Parsha and by the end of the Haftorah. So that are the similarities between our Parsha and the Haftorah, and that's a little bit of a summary of the Haftorah. But now we have our four questions that will come up with some amazing answers and some great things to think about. The first question, which is always asked, and let's get some spins on it. How could Korach, who was one of the people chosen to carry the Aron, the Ark of God, Aron Hashem, he carried it in the desert. Like, you weren't just a regular person there. And it says, Tzadik Katamar Yifra. Uh, a Tzadik is going to sprout like a date palm. If you take the last letters of Tzadik and then Tet, I'm sorry, Tzadik Yifrach Sofei Tevos, Tzadik is a Kuf, Katamar is a Resh, Yifrach is a Ches, that spells Korach. Korach was a Tzadik. Pikeachaya, he was an intellectual, a genius. Also we find, it says that he had Ruach HaKodesh, he had divine inspiration. He knew in this, he was told by Hashem that he was ultimately going to have a descendant that was going to be equivalent to Moshe and Aaron. It says in Tehillim, Moshe the Aaron called Bekoanav. Moshe and Aaron were his servants that served him. Ushmuel Bekore Shemo, and Shmuel who called his name. It means equivalent to Moshe and Aaron. Korim al Hashem, name. They call out to Hashem and he answers them. So, the, that Pasuk in Tehillim is telling us that Shmuel was equal in his generation. He was the equivalent of Moshe and Aaron. That's how holy of a man Shmuel Hanavi was. And who was his Alta Zeta? 
His Alta Zeta was Kairach. So he saw that Karach descended from him. So he said, look, I can't be all that bad. I've got an equal right here, and I've got a point. The Arizal says that ultimately when Mashiach will come, Korach will serve as the Kohen Gadol. Now, I don't know how that's going to work considering he's a Levi, but that's what the Arizal says. So what is the, and that makes our question even stronger. He goes down, gets the earth, swallows him and his followers up. What did, why, why where, where was he mistaken? Second question. So that's what a Korach do wrong. Second question. In Bamidbar Tetzai and Kofet, um, the uh, Moshe Rabbeinu gives a, when, when he's finally testing them with the frying pans like Hashem told him to, Moshe Rabbeinu says, now you're all going to know, God sent me. I, have, I was told to pick somebody other than Korah. Because it's not from my heart. Korah was chosen, uh, I mean, Eli Safan, my, um, I forgot to mention this for people that don't know. The whole thing of Korach and the Machlokas, I really should go back to this. Some people don't know anything about the Parsha, so let's just start with one little point here. The reason why we make a whole big deal of Korach is Korach was a direct relative of Moshe Rabbeinu. I don't have time to get into how, but he was very close relative. Um, Moshe first becomes God's anointed one at Har Sinai and giving the Torah. Aaron, his brother, becomes the head Kohen, according to the words of Hashem. And then it's time to choose leaders. So there were three Levim, Gershon, Gehast, and Merari, three, three brothers who had like um, tribes, you know, within the tribe of Levi, if you want to call it that. Gehast was the most highest one, which was the ones that they carried all the ornaments from the tabernacle. And they did also more prestigious tasks. So Karach was from that family. And then when they had to choose the leader of the of that group, you know, every group, you need leaders in every group so everybody can gather together and you have someone to organize everything. So the leader chosen was a man named Elit Safan ben Uziel. And Elit Safan was more distant of a relative than Korach. And Korach said, look, this is three spikes in a row. Elit Safan is closer related to Moshe than I am. And boy, three times he happens to pick family members. And I am the next in line. I'm the next of kin that should be chosen as the leader. So this is what caused the whole rebellion. Okay, so we have that. So that's the basis of the whole idea of Korah. So how could Korah have like gone against Moshe and he made a whole rebellion, took 250 men with him and decided that he is going to, um, you know, going to up, uproot Moshe Rabbeinu. He was there at Har Sinai. He was one of the Levim that screamed, Mila Shem Eli, and now all of a sudden he's resorting to a whole rebellion, a whole uprising. So we know that on one, he just said that he felt that it wasn't right, that, that the next of kin was not chosen. The one that was the closest in line to be the head of Kahas was not chosen, which was him. And instead, Eli Safan was chosen. So, from Nassim Vassal question number two, and that question is, the question number one, we said, how could he do it? Question number two, Nassim Vassal asked the question, after Matan Torah, how did, you know, now you'll know, it's not my heart that made me choose it. How, how could how could Korach have imagined that Moshe ch- chose anybody after Matan Torah? You know, everybody saw who great Moshe was. Hashem let him say the rest of the Ten Commandments. How could he, how could he, how could he be fooled like that? So that's like just extending question one. The idea is how could he was so great? The second thing is how could after he witnessed our own um, being, you know, chosen by Hashem, you know, how could he have challenged that? Now, Moshe Rabbeinu tried to minimize and even went to Dasan and Avira. He went to Korah. He went, he went out of his tent. It was not his fault. This whole, this whole argument that was bubbling, Moshe tried to keep the peace and he could have just stayed on his little distance, but he didn't. He approached them and tried to make peace, which is amazing. It shows us even when it's somebody else's fault. It's he tried to minimize focus, and he tells them 
Amr Asher. He says, says Rashi, B'nai Levi. Like, look where you are. You're, you're B'nai Levi. It's wonderful. Like, um, like, what do you want? Kahuna also, what do you want? So <laughs> this Rav Levi, Rav Bishar says in the Gemara, Rav Lachem, because he said the word Rav Lachem, Bisru, I'm sorry, Amr of Levi, Barav Biser. Rav Levi Barav said, Rav Levi said, because you use the word Rav, it's a lot for you or it's too much for you, which is, I feel, a very nice way of speaking. It's too much for you. We have so much to begin with. You're telling a child you have so much. Because he told them you have so much, Hashem told Moshe later on, Rav Lecha, you have so much that you gave the Torah to Klal Yisrael, you can't enter Eretz Yisrael. What was wrong with that statement, for, for goodness sakes, that Moshe Rabbeinu, and he said it so nicely, that isn't that a good way for a person to think? A person says, I have so much already. Like, why should I want more? And last one question is the whole, you know, this week's Parsha really speaks about greatness of women. You know, we hear Korach's wife was the one that egged him on to the whole argument. Korach's wife told him, you know, you're going to go through this all the time. You're going with Moshe Rabbeinu and you're, you're, you're just so important, you know, and you've got to go schlep things. You're schlepping them in the, the, the Aron and schlepping. And Moshe Rabbeinu is the big leader here. And you, who are you? You know, she egged him on. We find another person this week's Parsha, Own, Own Ben Pellet, was a person um, who was, you know, intending to join the rebellion. But, uh, what happened was, Om's wife said to him, come on, Om. She said, you know, listen, listen to me, she said. In any case, you are not the leader. You're a follower. She said, if you follow Moshe and Aaron, then you're going to follow them in any case. If you follow Korah, you're going to follow them in any case. Why be part of a rebellion when you stand to lose? Just stay. Don't do anything. Just stay back. He was, he said, but I promised them I would join their rebellion. So she said, I'll take care of it. Just get into bed. So she told him, go to sleep. She did something very dramatic. She stood by the doorway and took off her tichel, which is like, who would ever think of doing something in even Meishar and Borough Park, whatever. Yet she was the heroine of the Parsha because no man, no man in the door of Midbar, he was caught, a rebellion they'll cause, but they won't see a woman without her hair covered. She stood by the door. They they saw it. They glad they ran away. They ran away, and she saved her husband from the fate that befell Korach and his followers. Now that's very wonderful. But it's um, what was her great advice? She just told them, no matter what. It's like logical advice. If you follow Moshe, you'll follow him afterwards. If you follow Korach, you'll follow him afterwards. So why get started on? What was the great thing? There's a deeper message there. Let's follow it. Okay. So to answer these four questions, let's let's get more into it. The whole machlokas here is not so simple, by the way. You know, it says in Pirkei Avos, in Perik Hay, it says that the machlokas of Korach and his followers was not for the sake of heaven. It says, what machlokas was L'shem Shammai for the sake of heaven? The machlokas, the argument between Hillel and Shammai. You know, there are many arguments between Hillel and Shammai. There were many arguments between many great rabbis for good purposes, to try to keep the Torah the way they saw fit, to try to preserve the Messorah, the, the tradition of the Torah. Which machlokas is not for the sake of heaven? That's the machlokas of Korach. It seems to be Say many of the people, like for Justin Bachvogel and some other people that I read, I think that I mentioned too. If not for that, here, here's something a lot of people have not heard before. Really, Korach did have a legitimate argument. Think about it. The, um, there's, there's an idea here, he's saying, you know, first of all, there is an argument of, uh, you know, of the whole thing of your family. Like, how do you know this is legitimate? How do we know you're not being self-centered right now? Also, there's the argument of, do Jewish people need a king? 
That's exactly what was echoed by his great-grandson, Shmuel. Do Jewish people need a leader? Aren't we all supposed to be serving Hashem? What turned it into such a horrible event is his own personal biases, which we all know about his jealousy and other things. Other than that, that it would have been just a nice, legitimate argument, and he would have been answered properly. He could have discussed it. He could have gotten proof for it. The things he could have done, but blew it up so much, was his own personal agenda. That's what got him into trouble. Now, let's just get into some of these questions. Let's answer the last question first. Okay. Nassim Vachbogel says something outstanding. He says, one thing that we all have to know in, in our approach to Yiddishkeit, we talk about the sin of the spies, last week's Parsha. We talk about the sin of the golden calf. All these things started when people do not think. When they come in a group, in a crowd like that, and they don't think, mob psychology, people lose it. I don't know if I ever told you this. Many years ago, I had a kid who I felt really needed it. I took a kid to a hockey game, my one and only hockey game that I ever went to my whole life, and I hope I never have to go to another one. Um, <laughs> I, I am not a fan of anything like this, but I felt this child needed it way back very many, 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 many years ago. In any case, when, when somebody scored a goal or when somebody hit somebody over the head, the whole crowd rose to its feet, and I found myself doing the same. You know, and I didn't even know what I was doing because there's a mob psychology, there's a frenzy, everybody's screaming around you. Before you know it, you're doing the same thing, you know. Uh, there's some uh, teenagers that do that with even that, with, even with, without a mob. They just never see their friends doing it and they do it. But we have that within us. We have all teenagers within us, even though we've hopefully outgrown some, most of it. Um, that what happens is, you know, we peer pressure, we all succumb. Own's wife, the great thing about her was that she withstood, you know, she withstood peer pressure and she said something. When you feel too excited about something and you're unsure as to what you're about to do is right or wrong, which means sit and stop right now. Don't, don't pursue it. If you feel your emotions are leading you and you're not sure you're making the right decision, don't go there. That's what it means. Even things that seem unclear because it, it seems innocent. Uh, afterwards, you see the real proof of what happened. Vachvogel, you know, our two matriarchs, Rachel and Leah. Rachel epitomized modesty, it said. What was the modesty? So Hazal tell us her modesty was that she gave the secrets over to Leah about what to say to Yaakov. He'll know it's the right girl when he gets married to her. She gave her the secrets code words that she's supposed to tell him when they, after they got married. And she gave it to Leah. How is that Tzniyas? That sounds like kindness. Doesn't sound like Tzniyas. So it says Rav Nassim, a lot of people don't know this, but he said that Tzniyas was that Rachel never revealed to anyone afterwards. She never told anyone that she had given it to Leah. She never told Yaakov. In fact, for many, many years, until Leah started having many children, Yaakov thought that he was tricked by a combination of forces, Leah and her father, Lavan. He never knew that the Rachel had done such a wonderful act. Because this does not just mean dress. This means knowing when to put on the brakes, when not to speak. It's astounding to never tell anybody. Victor Miller always says that once a day a person should strive to have something they did that nobody knows about, to keep it quiet, you know, like even if you have to teach your children, even if you have to teach your children some things, you want them to learn from you. There's got to be things even your children don't know. There's got to be things that no one knows because then, first of all, you're doing it for the right reason. And that's a question of, you know, you're not doing it for public uh, claim. You're not doing it so people should all think you're the greatest thing on two feet. That's the idea. She never revealed to him. Can you imagine? So here we have an idea that what Omben Pellis' wife that did was so remarkable is that she, A, resisted peer pressure. She put on the brakes. And she said, no, now don't do anything. There's a time that when you feel you're too worked up, that's when a person should, like, 
it's not a time to accomplish anything, not, not in child raising for sure. You know, you're, you're not going to say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing. We have to calm down before we make clear-cut decisions. We have to think things over. The story that he brings down in Gemar Menachah's Kuktes, there were two sons of Shimon and Tzadik. One was called Shimi, the oldest, and the younger one was called Chanyo. Shimon Tzadik, you know, was definitely a Tzadik, and he passed, and he was also kind guttled. When, when he passed away, he told Chanyo that he should become the next Kohen Gadol. Chanyo, though, was, felt bad. He said, I'm the younger son. I'm two and a half years younger than my oldest brother, Shimmy. He says, you know what? I'll pass the Huna to my brother. I'll give it over. I'll be Mavater. I'll give to my brother. But he couldn't hold back. After a while, it got to him. He got jealous. He started feeling that, uh, you know, I'm not there. I wish I was there. So what did he do? It's unbelievable how people have needles. You could be the most, you know, kind, and you think you did this wonderful act of kindness, and afterwards you regret it. He regretted it. So what did he do? He was the more educated of the two. He told his brother to dress a certain way. It was not appropriate for the coin guttle. Not that there was some of the begotten mixed up that weren't proper. The Kohanim all got angry at him because he wasn't doing it right. And uh, Shimi said, it wasn't my, and they were all angry at him. And he said, no, no, it wasn't me. My brother told me to dress this way. They all got angry at Chanyo. They said he ran. They were chasing him up to Alexandria in Egypt. And he built a place called Base Chanyo there. Can you imagine that a person can have like, you know, you're possessed by, in his case, jealousy, even though he's the one that was Mavatar. Look how long sometimes you, you can't, you think you're good. But it sometimes can't last. Good, good to have, you know, being very generous or kind. Sometimes it doesn't last for a long time or any good media for that matter. We have to always be on guard like the tightrope walker. We don't know. At any given time, we could just fall all the way back down. Terrible. So for this reason, we have to be on guard, says Rav Nassim Bakvogel. Um's wife says the breaks, there's a time. It's not just to do how many mitzvahs you can do in your lifetime, but sometimes it's restraint. We have, that's a good thing for us to pause. That's a good reason why we have the Parsha Korah, the one major lesson that we're learning today, and that, that, that erases question number four, is that why, you know, what, what did Om Ben Pelitzes do that every Jewish woman should do? That's the time to restrain the husband. A woman's, it says a woman can build her house like it's the whole atmosphere by, you know, by, you know, sometimes mentioning, you know, this would be good or this would not be good or whatever. That we keep, we, we hopefully could keep things going in the house. But of course, nobody likes to be given muster or being nagged so much. But uh, in our own way, you say a word once or twice and you can do the right thing. Nelson Bachfogel mentions that many years before he became the Mashkiach of Lakewood, he was the Mashkiach of the Rebarn Cutler, such a humble man. He even, um, during his time, he even uh, he, he even passed away in Aaron Cutler's yard site because he was so humble and didn't want to take center stage. But in any case, Renatsen Vachvogel, many years earlier, there was some kind of controversial book that somebody found in the yeshiva that he was in, in White Plains, New York. And somebody asked him, New, Nassen, what do you think about this book? And he said, I don't know. I don't want to say anything about it. I have no thoughts. Because he felt, who am I in this place? I'm not going to take a stand. I'm not going to get into, get into controversy. There was a big controversy raging about that. He felt the smartest thing was not to get into controversy. They told this over to Ravarn Cutler, and Ravarn Cutler said, this man will ultimately be a mashkiach and a yeshiva because he knows when not to speak. He knows when to keep quiet. That's his claim to fame. But that's lesson number one. Know when not to speak, when to hold back, put on the brakes, especially when there's emotions raging. Along these lines is the whole impatience of Korah. We find Chaita Ega, like we were saying before, the golden calf and the spies, it all came from people impulsive, impulsive. That's, that's, that's when people don't think, that's when we can get somewhere. Rabbi Lowy once said something in a shear, and it stuck with me, and every time I remember to employ it, it's fine. You know, just to take a pause before every brach of Shmona Esrei, two seconds, three seconds, to think, I'm about to say this bracha. Whenever I have employed this method, I actually say that bracha with, with much more kavana. 
pausing really gets us thinking, especially with Spila, when we have to think, and especially when we are about to do something, we're like in a rush, or we have just done something that we're like, we're still grinding our heads about. Um, in both cases, we need a pause button. So just to pause is, or in benching between brachas. You know, what I try to tell myself in, 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 when I'm benching, again, I'm not saying I do it enough or too often, but it, what helped me is, is, you know, to just say, first of all, this is only going to take a few minutes, so I might as well do the best I can do. Another thing to pause before benching is to think the first brachal was made up by Moshe Rabbeinu. We're now saying Moshe Rabbeinu's words. Second paragraph, we're saying Yeshua's words. Third paragraph, David. Fourth paragraph, Shlaima. And the fifth paragraph, uh, like the some of the, the Gedolei Tanayim. So we're saying their words, you know. These are the holy words that guide us how to talk to Hashem to thank Him for our meal. So thinking really is, and that's a Jew has got to think. If we don't think, we're just like an animal with, with a head on top, you know. And that this is something that every single sin of the Jews or sin of anyone came from a lack of thought, just being impulsive and impatient. Rav Tom mentions in Chumash, many, many arguments come because people being impatient. If you could have waited, like he says that Shmuel's going to come for me ultimately, fine. If I should get rules of Kodesh and Shmuel's coming for him, why does it have to happen now? He never entertained the thought that several of his sons would do tshuva, and from them would come Shmuel Hanavi. The last minute, several of Korach's sons did tshuva. That he couldn't imagine. Couldn't imagine that. There's, you know, we think it's gonna. We have to push the button to make this happen. Be it, you know, getting a job. Be it getting a shit up. Be it getting just push enough buttons and it'll happen. But we always fail. Shem is going to come into the back door and bring another way that we didn't even imagine. And all we have to do is just keep plugging away. Like it says in Yirmiyo, Yud Zayin, Yud Aleph, Ferbina, Ose, Osher, Velo, Mishpat. He says if a person amasses wealth, but he, put, he pushes, he pushes to get it, and it's not honest, but Chatziyamav Yazven, it's going to ultimately leave him. At the end of his life, he's going to be foolish. Now, Yazvenu can be interpreted certain ways. He says sometimes when a person gains wealth, but it's unjust because he pushed and he had to come around and do all kinds of drays and all kinds of things to get money, what ends up happening is maybe the person was meant to get wealthy. Now he's also meant to get punished in, forever and ever for the sin he committed by doing it the wrong way. If he would have just waited, the money would come his way justly. Why do you have to get it unjustly? You're going to get it. It's been. If you work, it wasn't supposed to be yours, you're going to lose it. If it was meant to be yours, you'll keep it. But at the end, you're going to regret what you did. I know a story. Uh, several stories along this line. There's a story of somebody I know in town. This person was in real estate, commercial real estate, and he was taking a course. He hadn't quite yet finished his course. He didn't have a license yet, and someone offered him a very lucrative deal. And he said, I don't have a license yet. Um, so somebody in the deal, uh, somebody he knew, wasn't from, so to that credit, said to him, don't worry, put it on my name, and I'll give it to you afterwards. I'm, you just need someone with a license to put it on their name. And that's, he did it honestly, he did all the work, he did everything. At the very end, this person looked at him and said, sorry, it's all in my name. Uh, I, it's mine. He was so broken. He said the next day he went to davening. He said, why did Hashem do this to me? Why did he do this to me? So a, a friend of his at the Minion comforted him and he said, you look terrible. What's the matter? And he said, this is what happened to me. <laughs> I, uh, I worked my head off and because I was like, few weeks short of my license, what happened was somebody just took it from under my feet and took the whole deal. His friend told him, you know what? It was beshared this other person should be wealthy. But the choice is how should he be wealthy? Should he be wealthy in an honest way or in a dishonest way? And unfortunately, that money was meant to be his. But unfortunately, he's also going to be punished for being dishonest. The same thing here with Korah. 
if Shmuel Navi was going to become him and he's equal to Moshe, you have to do it this way. You have to come across this way to have to get it. You know, the, uh, it, you know, it's not going it, to, it's not going to get you anywhere. Impatience never gets us anywhere. Or too much Yishtablach, you know, if it goes crazy with it, you know, we have to realize we do what we can. Lo alacha hamlacha likmor. We do what we can. The law tapen We still have to put in our effort. And Hashem is going to carry the day and will help us out. And this is what we're supposed to do. And not, and sometimes put on those breaks, time to think, time to pause. And that's the beginning of all sin is when we fail to do so. Another thing, says Rav Hanoch Hanach Lebowitz, he says, Korach, another thing, Korach never imagined that his sons would do tshuva. Never. Can't imagine a person could change his background. He didn't have enough of a realization of the greatness of man. You realize how every move you make can be so fantastic, can really reap reward, that maybe he wouldn't feel like he has to push so much. You realize that a person can change at any given time. You didn't think of that, of that possibility that people can change. You know, in this week's parsha, we see something phenomenal. Moshe Rabbeinu has to daven Hashem, al tefen, al minchasam. Don't answer their prayers. When they're going to all come to you with the katoras in the frying pans, they're all going to come 250 men, or so to speak, bringing a korban, bringing a sacrifice before you. They were false. They were wrong. They were fighting against Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe had to daven, don't listen to them. Because even if you're wicked, Hashem listens to your tefillah. Every little move we make, the greatness of man, we don't realize how great a human being is everything we do. Moshe Rabbeinu, because he made an approach, a slight approach to Dustin and Aviram and Korach's tent, three of his sons repented and owned them pellets. Four people ended up, turn, you know, a person, they see the greatness just of a, okay, that's Moshe Rabbeinu, you could say, but in any case, small things. We don't know how we're influencing another person. One thing we do, a little thing we do, it could be a hello, it could be anything. We don't know any move we make, the great ramifications of that deal. We don't know how our tefillah today, how our benching today, how our after bracha today could make things in Shemayim. We're ignoring the greatness of man and the greatness of Hashem's commandments. And Korach failed to recognize that. That was one of the things he should have been thinking when, before he incited people against Moshe Rabbeinu. Another idea is brought to you by Rav Shimon Schwab, brilliant, deep idea. It's really from his Rabbi Sroll Salantra, but he expands upon it. It says like this. Okay, this idea of how Korach could have fallen so far. So we said, because he was impatient, because he didn't put the brick on because he didn't realize the greatness of man inherent in every person, inherent in himself, inherent in his son. To understand this idea of how he could have fallen, there's two chazals we have to understand. There are very um, popular things that have been said many times, but we're going to hear his explanation right now. First chazal in Gemara Sukkah says that when Mashiach will come, the Yetzirah is going to be slaughtered, so to speak. It doesn't mean slaughtered. It means that people have such an awareness of Hashem that they, a lot of things that we were worried about and thinking about and entertaining in our minds will be gone. We'll just, we'll all be so hyper aware of Hashem. There'll be much different type of Yetzirah at that time. There will be Yetzirah, but it won't be the same. Sadikim nidmelahem kahar. Sadikim are going to witness this Yetzirah and they're going to say, this case, Sahara, that we've been fighting with all our lives was like a mountain. And Rishayim, it's going to seem to them like, like a, like a, like a, how do you say, like a hair. Like a hair. It's going to like that. That's, that was their case, Sahara. How do we understand that? Sadiqim are going to cry and they're going to say, The Sadiqim are going to cry and they're going to say, How could we have conquered such a mountain? And the Risharim are going to cry, and they're going to say, How could we have not conquered the little hair? So that's going to be a prelude to what we're going to understand about Korach. Another, another Chazal, it says, Whoever is greater than his friend, 
whoever is greater than his friend has a bigger Yetzirah. Now, understand these two Chazals, and we'll understand the deep idea that Rabbi Yisrael Salanter brings that Rav Shimon Schwab expands upon. And he said, there are two kinds of Yetzirahs. One is the Yetzirah Chitzoni. There's a Yetzirah that's external. And there's a Yetzirah Pnimi. And there's an internal Yetzirah. What does that mean? It means the following. Rav Schwab explains about it. He says like this. The lower people, the person is on a lower level, he has what's called a Yetzirah Chitzoni. He has an external Yetzirah. And a person that is higher has more and more of an internal Yetzirah. That's what Rav Yisrael Salant says. Now, Rav Yisrael explains. He says like this. An external Yetzirah means that a person is fighting with himself just over commandments. Just over like, should I keep Shabbat? Should I keep kosher? That's his Yetzirah. You know, should I keep this law? Should I keep that law? A tzaddik is on a more refined level. A tzaddik's level is not, there's no question, he's conquered that territory already. He's beyond, and like we're all within a parameter, let's say, you know, uh, some people are just Rabbanans that they're like problem with, or, you know, Lashonar, of course, is harder than a lot of other halachas because it's constant versus, you know, kosher is like once in a while. But there's a Yetzirah, an internal Yetzirah, it's harder to conquer. But Shuman Schwab remarks that it says somewhere, where, is it, where does it bring it down? The Vilna Gong that says that many people that are totally non-believers are, have very good natures. Very good nature. Because they're just still fighting. The whole fight is, are you going to believe in, if you believe in God, are you going to put your money where your mouth is? Are you going to, are you going to, you know, you believe in God, so why aren't you, God gave you a handbook, a manual. You don't believe God gave you a manual to keep the Torah. You don't believe you have things to do with your life. So why aren't you doing it? Why aren't you conquering? Well, why don't you want to do, you can't believe God gave us the mission? You think God just said, drop down people, I'll see you, see you in 75, 85, 95, 120 years. And then when you come back, you know, we'll see if you're a good person. Good. Why would God just, there's, there's got to be lessons. There's got to be a lesson. And that's what we believe the Torah is. It tells us what we're here in the world for. That's our manual, what we're supposed to be doing in this world. But that's just the beginning. That's the chut it's a manual. You open the manual, you know there's the do's and the don'ts. And it's hard enough. And I, I don't know, I, I think I'm just on the first Yetzirah. I'm still struggling with that. The Yetzirah Primis means you're doing, you're doing all the right things. You're doing it. You're static. You're doing everything right. But your thing is much more refined. Was I thinking of Hashem when I did it? Was I thinking of, uh, I did Hashem Shemayim, that I brought Kavana when I said a bracha. That I put on in every single word. One day said, he came home in a good mood. His wife said, why? Could I dab in all three Shmona Esri today with total Kavana? How many of us can say that? Um, you know, that uh, the, uh, now, if we see people not keeping Torah, that doesn't mean we should feel superior because we've got our own, everybody at their own level has their own Yetzirah they're working on. You're busy looking at him or her, what they didn't do. We at that moment, we're not looking at what we have to do. And ours is more of the internal thing. The internal thing. Are we, are we littering? You know, not that, not that anybody I think listening to this would be littering, but there are people somewhere that are a little bit more lax with that with their children. You know, by the way, I just have to mention that, um, I remember when this was, was it last summer? In Muncie, they had a whole campaign. One of the ice cream manufacturers made a campaign where he got all the local kids Every kid that would bring three shopping bags full of litter from Lake, what's the name of that lake? Suzanne, Suzanne Lake in Muncie, would bring three bags of litter is going to get uh, an ice cream bar. And the, all, they got every single from kid to clean up the whole Suzanne Lake. Now, Halavai, we should have it done everywhere. You know, sometimes people, they don't, they think they're a child, you know, this more important chinuch. You know, there's also something, more something a little, you know, I'm not saying it isn't, but some people are so important in keeping things neat and clean and worrying about environment 
And meanwhile, they're not keeping the commandments. You know, what about God? Didn't God command you anything? Like, you know, so it's, it's a balance, a balancing act we always have to do. Because of that is what Shimon Schwab says, is that was what Korah, you talk about Korah, his Yetzirah was refined. It wasn't a Yetzirah of doing actual sins. It was already a Yetzirah of motives. Of motives, you know, that that's already, and, and the Midos really direct our whole life. We don't realize how much we do because of Midos. How much we do because of peer pressure, because what will people think, what will our parents think, what will our friends think. You know, so much is motivated by that. Um, and, and, and we have to have pure motives, and that's what Korach was missing. So even a great person always has to purify their motives. It's something lifelong job that we have to do. So we'll never be bored, even in our old age. We always have to be working on our meadows. And Nassim Vachel will expand on this a little bit more. Why did Moshe think that, I mean, sorry, why, why did Korach think that Moshe had a bias in choosing Aaron? So I'm just going to preface it with Kala Posel, the Mumla Posel. That's my thought, and I think I saw it in the portion way back when. Korach himself had a bias, so he sees it in Moshe, you know. You see in other people, you know, that, it, you know. But Korach's sin really was very similar to all the other parshas we're talking about. Like, we talked two weeks ago about the Misoninim, the, the complainers, and even the, the, the Meraglim. It was the whole idea of, I want a certain position. I want it my way. I want to, I want to, you know, serve Hashem my way. And um, this is not the way it was meant to be. That was his problem. He was, he wanted to be a Kohen, you know. He didn't feel, says Renasen Vachel, he didn't feel, you know, that Moshe was such a, after seeing him give the Torah, it's not like he was thinking, Moshe, you're such a, you know, you're a man that's so selfish. He thought that Moshe may have a tiny subconscious bias and that he's going to dive in a little bit more for our own to be selected as the Kohen Guttel. That's what he thought. That Moshe, and Hashem, of course, listens to Moshe because he's so superior to everyone else. And Hashem grants him his wish. That's all he thought, that Moshe had a little bit of a thing. That was his whole rebellion. He didn't think Moshe was this horrible person, you know. But uh, not that he did something underhanded. But Moshe answers him, lonely be, that you could say in your heart, I know my heart is pure. That's a very hard thing for a person to say. I don't know if any, if we, if a, if a person could say that very easily, we have to really check ourselves at our generation. I don't think it's necessarily so simple that everything we do is so pure. You know, that we, that we know that everything that we're, we're doing in this world is, is, is super pure. It's not necessarily, it's not necessarily true. Now, the... Moshe answered him, I am a shliach Hashem, and I was just choosing Aaron from my uh, shlichas, from my message, being a messenger. I have to read you these beautiful words from Rabbeinu Yona that Rav Nassim Vachlogel brings down. And this is what Rabbeinu Yona says in Shari Tshuva. Umi, shechananu Hashem yisbarach deya, and whoever is blessed with wisdom, yashiv alibo, he should tell himself. That God sent him to this world, to keep his position solid. Whatever he's, wherever he's supposed to do is mishmeret. Wherever he's mishmor, the place he is put on to keep it well. Whatever, whatever his purpose is, and his Torah and his, the commandments he doesn't understand, and the commandments he does understand. And he shouldn't look, put his eyes elsewhere when he's supposed to do his service. He shouldn't say, I wish I was this guy with that body and with that this and with that that. At the end of days, and at the end of days, if he does his service with good faith, he will come back with joy. And he'll have the joy of, of, of eternity on his head. Like a servant that was sent on the other side of the sea by his master. All his heart and his eyes are is, what am I here for? I've got a job. My master sent me here for a job. That's all I'm thinking about. Until he returns to his master. And that's what Shlomo Melech said. 
So he's saying that person should know that his main purpose in life is to not look right or left. He's here to, for a purpose besides to keep the Torah, obviously, but he's here to be a shliach. Now, what's the difference besides being keeping the Torah of being a shliach? So he explains. The way to explain it, he says, David Melech, when he was confronted with Goliath, um, you know, he, he met up with him and, and King Saul, Shalom Melech said to him, who are you? You're untrained. You're here with five stones. You're going to kill this mighty giant who's armed to the teeth and is, uh, you know, a skilled warrior. David Melech says, Hashem brought the lion and the bear. And I see that I'm the one Hashem wants me to serve him. And, and Goliath is, is leering at him and saying to him, am I a dog? You think, and he starts cursing God's name. And um, he was saying, naturally speaking, you're untrained. You can't, you can't fight me. But David said, I'm a shliach Hashem. That's what he said to Goliath. And when I'm a servant, it doesn't depend on my strength. It depends on Hashem guiding me. So I can, I can, I can be, if you're on that madrega, that you're just a pure shliach Hashem, then you can fight even Goliath with, with an ace because you believe, because all the giborim, all the warriors compared to Hashem are nothing. So if I'm just Hashem's messenger and I have no self-motive here, then everything, you know. <laughs> so he says, I'm coming just with the name of God. And he succeeded. Same thing happened wrong with Miraglim. You were sent by Hashem. Why are you thinking of your own agenda? It's too much. It's too this. It's too that. This will happen. That will happen. Why aren't you just doing your mission? That's what you're here for. Kalev did his mission. That's why uh, he went as a shliach, you know, and that's why he was successful. Now, Karach didn't understand. He had an agenda. He didn't understand. He thought that people have biases. A person that's an automashelling, a perfect person, which we're supposed to strive for, is not just to keep the commandments. We're supposed to say, Hashem, you sent me to this world. I have to do your mission, to do what you want. Now, here's a little secret. If we don't do our mission, God will punish us, and the mission will ultimately be done by someone else, or by through our punishment, people will learn from us to do the right thing. But really, we're here to perform a mission. That's here what we're supposed to do. And anytime we lose sight of that mission, we lose sight of the fact that we owe you everything, Hashem. And you're going to give us Olam Haba too. We're here to enjoy ourselves. We're here to enjoy this world. We're here to enjoy the next world. You gave us pure pleasure. We're indebted to you. We owe you everything. As soon as we feel this, then we're serving our mission. That's our purpose in this world. Not just to do rotely what we're supposed to do, but even in your head. And that's what Karas was missing. And that's the idea that he should have been thinking about the whole time that a person has to achieve greatness, and the greatness is we can all be a shliach. Now, all of a sudden, five women, sorry. Now, the find the tie the half Torah into the parsha. They say Shmuel corrected the sin of Korah. They both said Korah said Kulam Kola Ada Kulam Kedoshin. The whole group of them are all holy. Why should Vesocham Hashem and Hashem is in their midst? Lamas Isnasu. Why should you have? Why should you be the leader? Shmuel said Hashem Elokechem Malkechem. You don't need a king. You shouldn't choose a king. You don't need a leader. You are supposed to choose only Hashem. There shouldn't be any machitza between you and Hashem. Hashem should be your direct leader. He's your. He's your. That's the mission you're serving. And a king sometimes distracts us. Even though he's just a messenger of Hashem and he's supposed to remind us of Hashem, that's a lower madrega than to directly accept Hashem. Of, of, um, the uh, okay, the um, I'm just gonna I'm just trying to decide which to say first. That's why I pause one second because we're short on time. Um, now. Let's just, I'm just going to deter for one, for one minute and say like this. Rav Shemesh Schwab says, what was wrong with Moshe Rabbeinu saying Rav Lachen? It's too much for you, B'nai Levi. So Rav Shemesh Schwab says, what he did wrong was, it wasn't wrong at all. He was telling them, you know what? Being a Kohen is a lot of perks. You work in the base of Nekdash. You wear the special clothing. 
you're the guys that everybody looks at and admires. Everybody wants to be a Kohen. You get to eat certain karbanas, not that the eating is the main thing, but they're holy things, and you're doing holy work all day. B'nai Levi, you're luckier. What you're doing is just for Hashem. There's no perks. There's no self. There's no motives. There's no biases. You know, that's what he's telling them. You're, you're luckier. You're more ashamed from I am. You, ha- you don't have to worry about, am I doing it for the right motives or not? Hashem said to Moshe, you don't need Eretz Yisrael. You can go without Eretz Yisrael. Now, of course, Moshe got punished because he spoke to the rock and a bunch of other things. So it wasn't a punishment that he said, Rav Lachem. But because he said, Rav Lachem, Hashem says, you're right. You don't need props. person has to be the shliach. If we're a shliach, that's the main thing at the end of days. Now, Rav, Rav Nassim Bachel will tell us that in the time of Shmuel Hanavi, Chaval tell us, Shaul could have just been destroying Amalek and they, Mashiach would have come. They wouldn't have needed anything else. They were both going to have Mashiach. Like, uh, you know, at the time Mashiach, says Rav Nassim Bachel, all Jews would be like the Chavach Chaim. They won't need a leader. It even proves, it says in Pesukim in Yechezkel, that even the time of Mashiach, the main thing will be the king over the world, not the king over the Jews. Originally, Mashiach will be the king over the Jews, says Rav Nassim Bachel, but later, the Jews don't need a king. They need Hashem. They need Hashem. We want Mashiach in order to make the world a place where everyone will be closer to Hashem. He'll get rid of, he'll bring peace on earth. He'll build the base of Mikdash and he'll destroy Amalek. But really, Hashem alokechem Really, Hashem is supposed to be our king. Korach thought we already had like a geula. We don't need a leader. But Chet Egel, we didn't deserve a leader anymore. Every sin we do, Hazal has a bit of the cheta egel, a bit of the sin of the calf in it. What was the sin of the calf? They were looking for a replacement leader, right? Moshe Rabbeinu wasn't coming. They thought they had the symbol of this golden calf. Most of them did not want to serve idols. They wanted just a symbol to remind them of a leadership. But Hashem said, if, I, if there's no leader now, just let me run the show. You don't need somebody in the middle. But we have to realize nobody's running our life. Not the coronavirus, not the doctors, not the political leaders, not the anarchy, not the other things. Hashem alokechem malkechem. That's what's going to bring us to Mashiach, is once we recognize Hashem is running the show, and really he is flipping the whole world on his head right now to show us we don't what's going to be tomorrow with anything. How many of you had summer plans, order, so many things have failed because of we don't know what's going to be. It's, it's a great lesson. I hope we take this lesson just like they did for 40 years in the desert. We take this lesson. Forget our motives. Just let's be a good shaliach. Let's be the one that we cross over the, the other side of the sea you gave me, situation you gave me, that I am going to serve you. And that answer, Mashiach will come. It says, we, Mashiach's main purpose is not to leave the Jews. We don't need a leader. We need someone to just lead the world and get the world to behave itself. And eventually all the Jews will be deserving. And we said, like the Arizal said, Korach had the right idea. You don't have to have a leader. He's right. But his, it got a little bit out of hand because of his personal agenda there, which was so minute because it was a Yetzirah Benimi. So, just to end up with a small story to illustrate how some great Jewish leaders were so, Rav Shach, the great Rav Shach from the Panavish Yeshiva, the Gadol Hador, when he was, when he, in his last years, he told his students, I don't want to be buried with this farm that I wrote, which was customary by great authors. They used to say, you know, Shemaim, I want to show this farm I wrote to you, Hashem. He says, I want to be buried with all the posters that people posted, the busyness that I got, the people that mocked me and scorned me and said how terrible I was. Those insults help me with my agenda to be more l'shem shemayim, to be more of a shliach Hashem, to be more without an agenda. That's what I want to be buried with. So I thank you for listening. We should all try to march on from this to be 
really towards Mashiach and Yetz Hashem to be the, to have to be a Shliach Hashem, to be the Eved Neman that Hashem wants us to be, besides just keeping the commandments, and let us work on our Yetzirah, the external one, and the, eventually we should all be Zaycha to work on the internal one, so we should look back and say, how could we conquer such a great mountain? I thank you for listening, and I hope to see you again next week with Mashiach Bukeno and Herav Yameinu. Amen.